Good morning. It is a privilege to be with each and every one of you this morning. Uh, some of you may be here for the first time. This is my first time at WSBC as well, uh, but it is a joy to be here. I bring you greetings from SIBC, uh, the church on the other side of the city. I was thinking on the way here, man, a year ago this Sunday uh, was, I think, your, your last Sunday before we sent you out uh, to become WSBC. And I remember that day very vividly because it was a it was a sad day for me. There were other feelings, certainly, but primarily it was feelings of sadness. I felt like I was uh, saying goodbye to uh, good friends. I was saying goodbye to, to good friends as we sent you all out. Uh, and it was, it was a hard day. It was a sad day. And then the next Sunday when you weren't there, we felt your absence. It was hard. It was, it was difficult. Uh, then last week, uh, our church gathered for our evening service, and we prayed for WSBC. We prayed that you would be built up in the faith. We prayed that God would provide for you. And I remember last week feeling nothing but joy, a joy in what the Lord has been doing on this side of the city through you and what the Lord has been doing on our side of the city, how he's provided for both congregations and more people have heard the gospel and more Christians have found good churches as a result of us sending you out uh, a year ago. Uh, so I do bring you greetings from SIBC. I want you to know that we're praying for you and we're so happy to be partnering with you uh, in getting the gospel out to this city. Uh, my wedding day was the best day of my life. Uh, my wedding day secured my lifelong commitment to Emily, who's sitting over here on the second row. And this happened after four long years of dating. There, there, there's a picture in our wedding book. If you come to my apartment sometime, I can show it to you. Uh, and it was, taking, it was taken moments before Emily and I left the church. And in this picture, Emily is clinging to her mother with tears streaming down her face. And in the background, I have this giant grin on my face. Now, we have different interpretations of that picture. She's going to tell you something different. But I believe that it's the moment where she really finally realized what she was getting herself into. And Emily and I had dated for four years, which was great. Uh, we had a, a great relationship during those four years. But one of the downsides of dating was the worry that the relationship might not last. That it might come to an end. But marriage... It's totally different. No matter what Emily and I are going through, whether we're arguing, whether we're separated for a time because I'm on a, I'm on a trip or something, whether we are celebrating something, we rest in the knowledge that our marriage is permanent. We're bound to each other. Our marriage is permanent. Whether we feel close to one another or distant, we are bound to one another for life. And yet, the fact that we are bound to each other does not rid, of us, rid us of our responsibility to work at our marriage, to demonstrate our love for one another. So we go on dates. We have to communicate. We have to work through our arguments and our disagreements. I have to buy her flowers when I upset her. I have to do these things. We have to work at our marriage. Our marriage requires work. It's permanent, but it requires work at the same time. And if we don't work at it, it's going to die. But the fact that it is permanent encourages us and makes us want to work at our marriage. It's secure, and yet work and responsibility are necessary. This corresponds, I think, to an important spiritual point that Jude, in his letter towards the, ends of, toward the end of your New Testament, wants to drive home to his readers. It's a point that we're going to consider today as we study the second half of Jude. So you can turn there in your Bibles. I know it's printed in your bulletins. I would, I would encourage you to open up your Bible if, if you have one. Uh, if you go to Revelation and then just go back one book, you're going to find the letter of Jude. How do we persevere in the faith? In a world of dangerous imposters that infiltrate the church, as the first half of Jude warns, how do we continue in the faith when the truth of God's word is offensive to the, to the culture and scoffers rise up against us? How do we remain true to Jesus? 
when sin is so deceitful and we see friends pulled into it and maybe we feel in our own hearts the, the tug of sin, how do we maintain faithfulness to God? When our doubts seem so strong, so legitimate, how do we persevere in the faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Jude's concern is that Christians, that you, will remain faithful to Jesus to the end. His concern is that we will persevere in the faith, that we will take action to remain in the love of God, lest our faith wither away and die. So how do we persevere in the faith? Well, the second half of Jude's letter answers this very question, and we're going to look at this part of Jude's letter under three headings. First, perseverance requires work. Second, perseverance requires the church. And third, perseverance requires God. That's our outline this morning. Perseverance requires work. Perseverance requires the church. And perseverance requires God. Turn with me to the book of Jude, the second to last book in your Bible. We're going to focus on verses 17 through 25 this morning, but we're actually going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to skip to verse 17 and read to the end. You can follow along with me. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. This letter was written 2,000 years ago by a man named Jude. Jude says at the beginning of this letter that he is a servant, a, a slave of Jesus Christ. He's also, he says, the brother of James. Now, there's really only one James that Jude could be talking about in this letter. He's talking about his brother James, the leader of the New Testament uh, of, the, of the Jerusalem church and the writer of the New Testament letter, the book of James. This was Jesus' own brother. James was Jesus' own brother. And, which that, and that means that Jude himself was Jesus' brother. And before we look at verses 17 through 25, I think that this is a point that is worth reflecting on. Because here, in this letter, Jude primarily identifies as a servant of Jesus Christ. But that's only part of Jude's story. Jude did not always consider himself to be a servant of Jesus. He did not always consider himself to, to be a follower of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 5, uh, we learn that Jude, Jesus' brother, did not believe in Jesus. So as Jesus walked around Israel proclaiming teachings that, that angered the religious leaders, as he drew massive crowds to himself and claimed to be the Son of God, Jude, his brother, would have none of it. He did not believe it. So what happened to Jude? What caused him to go from unbelief 
from not believing his brother, from annoyance and even frustration at Jesus to a celebration of Jesus as his Lord? What would cause a man like Jude to go from doubting Jesus to Jesus' life to celebrating Jesus as Lord after Jesus died on the cross? What happened? Friends, the answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason Jude became a Christian is because his brother came back from the dead and he saw his brother live again. Jude became convicted of his sin and his unbelief and he begged his resurrected Lord to save him and forgive him of his sins. So if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that we're glad that you're here. Uh, I know this church well. I know that they are glad that you're here. You're always welcome to WSBC. I'd love to even meet you after the service. But I think that this is a, a point for you to consider in particular. Most of the rest of the morning, I'm going to be speaking directly to Christians and encouraging them from the book of Jude, how we as Christians can persevere in the faith. And I just want you to know that the reason we think it's so important to persevere in the faith is because we believe that Jesus has come back from the dead, just like Jude believed this. I hope that as we consider Jude's word this morning, you might consider Jude's testimony. And I think that if you do so honestly, you too might become a Christian. You might see that Jesus really did come back from the dead, and that he's worthy of our worship. Well, the question before us this morning is, what happens after we become Christians? How do we persevere in the faith? Let's consider our first point. Perseverance requires work. We're going to see this in verses 17 through 21. Jude addresses a, a church in trouble. Imposters had infiltrated the church. They were denying key aspects of the Christian faith, and they were perverting the grace of God. They were living in sin and they were justifying it. Jude appeals to the church in verse 3 and he tells us the main point of this entire letter. He says, For the love of God and for the love of His church contend for and guard and defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Look at verses 17 through 20. Jude's concern is not simply that Christians will recognize and attack false teachers. His concern is that we who are Christians would persevere in the faith in the midst of false teachers. His concern is that we would maintain faithfulness to God. In verses 17 through 19, he says, scoffers are going to arise. Worldly people who don't have the Spirit will scoff at us. But what does Jude tell Christians to do as a result? Are they to yell at them? Are they to get angry with them? Are they to fight back? Or are they to go off on social media rants? Now look, but you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So what do you do in the midst of imposters and scoffers and false teachers. You live faithful lives. This is what Jude tells us to do. Jude's instructions to Christians is to concern themselves first and foremost with their own love for God. You know, Jude knows that love for God cannot thrive when we spend all of our time critiquing other people. Love for God doesn't flourish when we constantly look for the deficiencies of others. Love for God does flourish. It blossoms through the daily difficult battle for faithfulness. So what does the battle for faithfulness look like? What does perseverance look like? I'm going to have to ask you to bear with me for just a few minutes because we're going to get a bit technical this morning. Uh, but I, I think it's only going to last for a few minutes, hopefully. And we know that God inspires every word of Scripture, so we want to look at the details and make sure that we're understanding it rightly. So look back down at verses 20 and 21. I want to tell you how I first read these verses. But you, beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith. 
okay, I need to build myself up in the faith. Got it, doing that. What's next? All right, pray in the Holy Spirit. Okay, pray more. The Bible tells me to pray more. I know I need to pray more. Got it. What's next? Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep myself in the love of God? I don't, what does that even mean? How do I do that? I'm just going to skip that. Go to the next one. Wait for the mercy of Jesus that leads to eternal life. Oh, I just need to wait. That's easy. I'm already doing that. I'm going to keep waiting. Good for me. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but honestly, the first time I read this book, that's exactly how I read this passage. That's not what it says. Look back down at it. Do you notice any similarities and differences between the verbal words in these verses? So the verbal words are building, praying, keep, and waiting. Notice that three of these words end in ing and one of these words does not. The reason is because Jude is not simply giving us four separate and unrelated commands. So if you have a pen, I want you to take your pen and underline the phrase in verse 21. Keep yourself in the love of God. Just underline it. And then I want you to write next to it main verb. The only true verb in this passage is the word keep in verse 21. This is what Jude is commanding Christians to do. Keep yourself in the love of God. All right, now take your pens and underline the words building, praying, and waiting. These three words are called participles. Now, I told you we're going to get technical. Bear with me just a little bit longer. And you can see that these words are participles because they end in ing. These three words modify the main verb, keep yourself. So you can think of that ing ending almost like blue. It sticks these words to the main verb. All right, the technical stuff's over. Zoom back, you know, zoom back in. Think for a moment about how this helps us understand what Jude is saying. Jude's exhortation to us is this. Keep yourself in the love of God. That's what Jude's concern is. Keep yourself in the love of God. Well, how? How do we do this? Well, Jude tells us exactly how to do it. He has attached the instructions with glue to the command. Keep yourself in the love of God, Jude says, one, by building yourself up in the most holy faith. By two, by praying in the Holy Spirit. And three, by waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is God's spiritual growth plan for your life. Do you want to persevere in the faith? Do you want to keep yourself in the love of God? Then build your faith. Pray and wait for Jesus to come back. I think all of us who are Christians have at times been captivated by the realization of God's love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We can probably remember those times where our affection for God soared as we thought about what he's done for us in Christ. We may sometimes uh, question, though, from time to time, whether God remembers us now. We may sometimes feel the very real struggle for joy. We may sometimes feel our affections go stagnant. We don't feel them anymore. We might say that sometimes we enter into a spiritual rut, or we become spiritually dry. Of course, feelings and emotions come and go. We're never guaranteed constant spiritual excitement. But do you know what a you know a surefire way to 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 fall into sin is? Do you know what a surefire way to struggle spiritually would be for you? It would be to stop doing the work of building your faith, praying, and waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. If we stop doing these things, of course we're going to be spiritually dry. Of course, we are going to doubt God's love for us. See, the words that Jude uses here are work words. Build, pray, wait. These things take effort. They're strenuous activities. 
Sometimes Christians, I know, get uncomfortable with work words, especially as it relates to our salvation. We believe rightly that, that we are sinners. You know, we know that we have tried to steal God's crown and place it on our own heads. We believe that the only way we can be saved from God's wrath is if God acts to save us. We believe that the only way we can be forgiven of our sins is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through us coming to faith in Jesus. We believe that Jesus, who did not commit any treason against God, died as a traitor on our behalf. He took our sin, he took our punishment, and we know that God accepts his sacrifice because Jesus came back from the dead. And now we know that through our faith in Jesus, God has set his love on us. He has saved us. He's forgiven us of our sins, and that's through grace alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All of that is true. We believe that. That's our hope. But friends, the Bible does not shy away from calling on Christians to do the hard work of keeping ourselves in the love of God. Salvation is not by works, but salvation does work. We build, we pray, we wait, and so we persevere in the love of God. So one way we work, we build up our faith, as we see here. When Jude uses the word faith in verses 3 and in verse 20, he's talking about the message of the gospel. He's talking about a, a message that has doctrinal content. He's talking about theology. The gospel is the foundation upon which we build our lives. So brothers and sisters, the obvious way to apply this is to build upon the foundation. Build upon the foundation of the gospel. Build walls by learning more about the faith that you profess. Make, a, make your foundation stronger by growing in your knowledge of theology. Re, construct a second floor by reading good Christian books. Go to the Sunday morning equipping classes that are offered here. Devote significant time to digesting scripture. These are all ways that you can build yourself up in the faith. These are great things to do. But you know, I think that there's actually something a little more basic here that we need to consider. Maybe especially for those of us in churches like WSBC and SIBC, where we already prize and cherish theology so much. Psalm chapter 119, verse 100 says, I understand more than the age because I keep your commandments. So if you want to improve your foundation, obey God. Obey Him. We gain understanding. We're built up in the faith through simple obedience to Jesus. So friends, don't grow weary in fighting sin in your life. Look for ways to obey God. His commands are good for us. They'll make our house stronger. They'll build us up in the faith. Jude also tells us that persevering in the love of God entails praying in the Holy Spirit. I mean, isn't that such a privilege? We have the privilege of going to God the Father and praying to Him. The Spirit of the living God dwells within us, and He takes our prayers to the throne of God. Friends, don't waste this privilege. Pray to the God who hears you. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. When? When I remember you. When I remember you upon my bed. He says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When? When I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Oh church, we can be satisfied. We can have true joy. Do you know when? When we pray. To God. Love for God is sustained and nurtured when we pray. So, church, when do you pray? When do you pray? We must pray. If we would keep ourselves in the love of God, we must pray. I think that one of the reasons we spend so often, so spend so little time in prayer is because we just don't know how to pray. 
if anybody in here would say that, you know, I really don't know how to pray. You know, the different kinds of prayers that we pray on Sunday mornings, the ones that, that you guys prayed this morning, these prayers are meant to teach us how to pray. I think one of the ways that we grow in our prayer life is through diversifying our prayer life. I think often we simply pray the same old prayers all the time. If the majority of our prayer life is simply asking God for the random things that pop into our heads throughout the day, then I think that we're going to struggle to pray. But if our prayer life is diverse, if we mix it up a little bit, I think that our hearts will sing with the psalmist, my soul is satisfied and my lips are joyful when I pray. So make it a habit, friends, to praise God in prayer before you go to Him with any requests. But do more than just that. Remember to confess your sins to God in prayer. I'm not just talking about going to God and simply generically asking God to forgive you of your sins. No, put concentrated effort into thinking about the ways that you have sinned against God and offended Him. And confess those things to God. You'll find that He loves to forgive. And then once you confess your sins to God, then you can go to Him with your needs and your desires. And you'll find Him to be a Father who loves to answer our prayers. And finally, spend time thanking God for all the good things He's done for you. For answering your prayers. For even giving you the millions of good things that you didn't even think to ask for. I pray that West Shanghai Baptist Church would be a church that delights to pray in the Holy Spirit. Jude also says that we keep ourselves in the love of God by waiting on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Our great hope is that Jesus Christ is not only risen from the dead, but one day He's going to come back. He's going to come back and He is going to reveal the mercy that we've already become so familiar with and that is going to result in eternal life that's going to be unleashed upon us. True life will flood the earth to the benefit of all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. This is what we are waiting for. We will receive life eternal with God the Creator and Sustainer and Savior. So brothers and sisters, let us not dispassionately wait for this day. Let us not wait for this day simply by default. Let us not lazily wait for this day. Let us wait for this day with eager anticipation, knowing that it is going to result in eternal life with God, where we will be with Jesus face to face, and we will inherit our glorious hope. So how do we know whether we are eagerly waiting for this day? When we take our eyes off our future hope, we find that our love for God slowly begins to evaporate and in its place is left a love for this world. I'm not just talking about a love for sin when I say that. I'm talking about a heart that prioritizes the same kinds of things that our non-Christian friends talk, prioritize. I'm talking about a perspective that considers momentary afflictions as greater burdens than the joys of eternal hope. I'm talking about a life that is immersed in the same patterns as our non-Christian co-workers. See, the, the mercy of Jesus that leads to our eternal life will one day flow like a river upon the earth. And that hope that we are waiting for should affect our career choices. That hope should kill idols in our life, whether that's family idols, or job idols, or money idols, or power idols. Friends, use this hope to reorient your priorities. Dwell on this hope as you begin to change your goals. This may mean that you actually turn down job promotions so that you have more time to invest in your family or in your church. It may mean that you see the responsibilities God has given you, your work, your family, your church, as opportunities that God has given you to be faithful to Him, to be faithful to your responsibilities. It may mean you sacrifice a, a larger paycheck back in your home country so that you can live in China, this land that so desperately needs a Christian presence. 
It may mean that you teach your children to love other cultures knowing full well that God may call them to be missionaries one day, far from you. This is what it looks like to wait for Jesus. It means praising the name of God even when he hasn't answered your prayers for children, for a spouse, for good health. It means praising God in all circumstances. Wait, brothers and sisters. Wait for Jesus. Eagerly. Expectantly. Desperately. Wait for Jesus to return. And for the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Friends, how are you doing in these areas? Building yourself up in the faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Waiting for Jesus to return. Are you in a season of just sort of spiritually coasting? Sort of cruising along for the ride? Is that where you're at? Friends, one day the mercy of Jesus that leads to eternal life will be revealed. And when that day comes, we, by God's grace, should be breathing hard from working hard. And dear friends, this burden that I'm talking about is a light one. Don't think for one second that the kind of faithful living that Jude is calling us to is a heavy burden. I mean, look at where it ends. The love of God. A holy and robust faith. Joyful, satisfied communion with the Holy Spirit. And merciful, eternal life. Friends, let us be found breathing hard. Let us work hard as we wait for Jesus to return. Secondly, we see in Jude's letter that perseverance requires the church. We see this in verses 22 through 23. Jude's concern is not simply that we care about ourselves. He wants us to care about others. We see secondly here that perseverance requires the church. Look at verses 22 through 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So how do we persevere? Friends, we need others. We need other people to help us. We need other Christians. And we need to help others. Recently, I was on a plane uh, coming to China from the United States... I don't know about you, but I love those little maps that they have on the little TV screens in front of you. Uh, You know, it has your uh, departing city pinpointed and your destination city pinpointed, and it's showing you exactly where you're at flying over the world. Uh, I I mean, I watch the movies, but sometimes I take a break from the movies just because I want to look at this little map. It's interesting to me. I was looking at it uh, on this trip, and I noticed that it recorded how high up we were. We were 10,000 meters up. And I thought, how in the world do we navigate when we're this high up? There's no landmarks telling us where we need to go. How do we know whether we're going in the right direction or not? Then I noticed that it recorded the speed of the wind outside, 133 kilometers per hour. And I was shocked by that. Because as I thought about it, I thought, how in the world... Does this flying tube of metal not snap in half like a twig with wind that is going that fast? And then as I was thinking about these things, it just hit me. I rely on these pilots a lot. I entrust them with a lot. I entrust them with my safety, with the safety of my wife, with the safety of my unborn child, all my... Uh, bags and my computers. I entrust them with a lot. I need them to navigate correctly. I depend on them to keep the plane steady. I can't do that by myself. You know, we rely on other people for just about everything, don't we? We rely on pilots to get us where we need to go. We rely on farmers to grow food for us. We rely on skilled workers to fix our homes. We rely on our eyes to do pretty much everything else in our life, but we are constantly relying on other people. Friends, if this is true for pretty much everything in our life, how much more is this true when it comes to spiritual matters? Why would we think that it's any different? 
we need other Christians. God has designed it so that we would rely on the church for help spiritually. Jude writes to a specific local church, to a specific group of Christians, and he instructs them to have mercy on those Christians in their midst who doubt. He instructs them to save those Christians who are dangerously close to sin. He instructs them to show mercy cautiously and carefully to those who have been ensnared by sin. In other words, we have a biblical responsibility to help other Christians who fall into doubts or who fall into sin. We have a responsibility to help Christians who need help. Look at the words that Jude says here. It says some were doubting, likely because of the false teaching and the sinful lifestyle of the imposters who had crept into the church. Some of these professing Christians were in danger of the fire, he says. He's talking about the fires of hell there. And some Christians, they're they're in even worse position. Other professing Christians are ensnared by sin and may even be in a, a danger to other Christians. They may drag others down with them. Their sin may spread. According to Jude, the hope for these weak and struggling Christians is the church. If the church does not help them, their doubts will overcome them. The fires will consume them. And their sin will devour and take others down too. Friends, we are commanded by God to help other Christians in this situation, in these situations. There's one other thing I saw on that airplane map. I saw that for United Airline members, we were qualifying for 7,000 air miles for flying with them, which is a good thing. And I was thinking of the sermon on the plane, and this made me wonder if sometimes... There might be confusion when we talk about church membership. I wonder if you, when you hear the word church membership or membership at at WSBC, I wonder if you think of an airline's miles membership program or a gym membership. You know, in those membership programs, customers receive certain benefits from being members. If you give your money, you're going to get certain things in return. But friends, when we talk about church membership, that is not primarily what we mean. Becoming a member at a church, at WSBC, for example, is not like becoming a member at a gym. Give us your money, you can come out here and work out. That's not it at all. The idea of church membership predates all of those things because it comes from the mind of God. And the primary purpose of it is not so much that we would receive benefits, The primary purpose is that we would benefit others. That we would benefit other Christians. Church membership is for us to bless others. It's for us to serve others. Gym membership is for consumers. Christians are providers. God calls us as Christians to provide a service to other brothers and sisters in Christ. We show mercy on our fellow church members who doubt We save those church members from the fire by calling them away from sin and to repentance. We have compassionate mercy on those entrenched by sin, and we help them to escape. So Christians, you cannot be obedient to Jude's commands here, to God's commands here, if you're living on the outskirts of the church, never fully committing, come in and out, you cannot, fully, you cannot fully fulfill your God-given responsibilities to other Christians when you just sort of show up on Sunday mornings, you arrive a little late, you leave as quickly as possible. These commands require knowing our brothers and sisters in Christ. They require being involved in their lives, understanding them, meeting with them. If you are a Christian, God calls on you to provide the service of mercy to others within the church. So WSBC, these are your responsibilities to one another. This is your job description. If you are a Christian, these are your responsibilities to other Christians. 
So do you spend time getting to know other brothers and sisters in the church? Do you have the kind of relationship with other members that if they were struggling with doubts, you would know it? Do you invest time in others asking the the kinds of questions that help you know whether somebody is struggling with sin and needs your help? Friends, I know that our lives are busy, they're complicated. I know that relationships with others are difficult and can get complicated as well. Sometimes, you know, when when we have a few free moments, we'd rather just spend it in front of the TV. It's our only time to rest. But this is our job description as Christians. This is what God calls us to. We must do these things. So here's one idea on how you can do it. Take advantage of Sundays as the primary day to build these kind of relationships. Come early on Sunday mornings to interact with other believers. After church, stay late talking to other Christians. Maybe go out to lunch with people or have them into your home for lunch. If you live closer to WSBC, open up your home on Sunday afternoon so that those who live further away can stay with you while they wait for the evening service. I mean, this would be a full day. It might be a hard day. But I think it would be a day that would be beneficial to you and others. I'm sure there are other creative ways that we can think about to fulfill our responsibilities to one another. Maybe as you go to lunch today, you can talk about how you can fulfill these commands with the relationships you have with other Christians. There are secondary implications from verses 22 through 23 that I think that we need to consider. These verses are calling on us to have mercy towards fellow church members who doubt or have fallen into sin. Friends, the implication of this is that the church should be a safe place for those who doubt. The church should be a safe place for struggling Christians. I want WSBC to be a safe place where people can make their doubts known. If you have doubts about Christianity, even if you are already a Christian, or if you struggle with assurance of salvation, or if you find yourself doubting parts of the Bible, make those doubts known to other people. We don't want to celebrate doubt, but we certainly don't want to keep it hidden either. We want to be a church that sympathetically walks with those who doubt. God is a mighty and powerful God. Doubts are not going to overthrow Him. And we should not fear genuine questions and concerns from those who sincerely desire rest from the doubts that are afflicting them. And we also want to be a safe community for those who are struggling with sin. Friends, bring your sins to light here. Don't keep them hidden. Don't hide your sins. Tell a member that you trust about some of the sins that you struggle with. You're not going to be condemned. You're not going to be sent away. Bringing sin to light is actually a sign of God's grace in your life. This should be a safe place where you can tell others about what's going on in your life. We want to show mercy to one another. We want to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another, don't we? We want to entreat one another to repent, and then we want to bear with one another as we seek to live carefully, denying ungodliness, worldly lusts. Friends, the church is for you. If you doubt, if you're a sinner, the church is for you, and you need the church. The perseverance in the faith requires the church. Thirdly, finally and briefly, perseverance requires God. Verses 24 through 25. Incredibly, gloriously, majestically, perseverance requires God. And God, who is so unlike us, never fails. God does not fail. Jude says, contend for the faith against those who wish to destroy you. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. Jude says, save save others from the fire. But at the end of the day, he says, God 
is able to keep you. Look at verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Perseverance is something like marriage. Marriage requires work to sustain it. And yet it is permanent. Perseverance requires work. Perseverance requires the church. But even our efforts to keep ourselves in the love of God are gifts of God's grace given to us by the Spirit of God, empowering us to persevere. I think Psalm 127 explains this perfectly. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So we labor to build. We stay awake and we watch. But our hope must be in the God who is able to preserve us in the faith. Because without him, our labors are in vain. So Jude ends his letter with a loud, praise God. Our perseverance in the faith does not ultimately depend on any one of us. It depends on God himself. Praise God because God has the power to keep us in the faith. Jude ends with what he's been saying really all along. Look way back up in verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I don't want to get too technical again, but that word kept is passive. Meaning that we are relying on something outside of ourselves to keep us. So who is keeping us? Who keeps you? We can look back to the end of Jude. The God who is able to keep you, keeps you for Jesus Christ. The blood of God's own Son has won your perseverance, and God will not allow your perseverance to fail. Your perseverance is as secure as Jesus' status before God. So Jude, in great joy, can't help but close his letter by magnifying this God. Marvel at what this God does. Three things that God has unwaveringly resolved to do for you. He will keep you from stumbling. He will present you blameless before God. And He will give you great joy. God will keep you from stumbling. You may sin in life. You may have doubts. There may be seasons where your affections for God will seem dim. But in the end, God will certainly and finally keep you in His love. Friends, do you doubt whether you will be fully and finally saved? His grip on you is strong and he will hold you fast. But there's more. God will present you blameless before the presence of his, of his, of his glory. Jesus' blood covers you so that on the day of redemption, no spot and no blemish is going to remain. God is going to set you forward as his prize. So this morning, does your sin weigh heavily on your heart? Friends, Jesus has taken care of it. The bill has been paid. The stains have been washed. But there's even more. Look at that last phrase in verse 24. With great joy. That's not talking about God's joy. That's talking about your joy. You will be kept. You will be presented as blameless. And on that day and forevermore, joy will overflow. So this morning, do your affections for God wonder? Do your doubts cause you to fear? Does your sin drain you of your happiness? Friends, complete, eternal, God-given joy is coming for you. It is coming. 
Brothers and sisters, we are talking about realities here that only God can bring about. And that's exactly what we've been talking about all morning. Creating and sustaining spiritual life in your heart is only something that God can do. This is why Jude doesn't praise Christians at the end of his letter. He praises God himself. He praises the only one who can make our perseverance certain. I think it was John Piper who, when reflecting on these verses, pointed out that it takes glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to keep you. But friends, praise God because that is exactly the kind of power that God has. Now and forevermore, all glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority belong only to Him. It is God who created you. It is God who sustains you even after you sinned against Him. It is God the Son who came down to pay the penalty for your sins and then who rose from the dead. It is God the Spirit who breathed new life into your dead hearts and created faith. It is God who brings about our perseverance. Do you see this in this passage? He forgives you of your sin through Christ. He commands you in love through His Word. He empowers you by His Spirit to persevere. And the whole time, He is the one working behind the scenes, preserving you, keeping your faith going. He is going to be the one who is going to present you blameless and with great joy. And though it is all Him, you and I receive the benefits. We receive the benefits of His glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And He receives the praise for His glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. You, Christian, are God's trophy. You are God's blood-bought prize. And for the rest of eternity, God is going to point at you. And He's going to say, look at Him. Look at her. Look at what I did. I saved them. I preserved them. I brought them safely home. And for the rest of eternity, we are going to look at God and we're going to point to Him and we're going to say, look at what God did. Praise God for His glory, dominion, power, and authority. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise You this morning because we know that even as You call us to persevere, And even as you have told us that the means to perseverance is to work hard and to help one another, Lord, we know that you are the one behind the scenes working it all out. We trust that one day you are going to present us as blameless and we will spend the rest of eternity with great joy worshiping you. Lord, we pray for this day to come soon. May Jesus come back, we pray. In Jesus' name.